and welcome to Women in Confidence with Vanessa Murphy, the podcast that discusses all things to do with confidence at work. This is a podcast for women who want to know more about where their confidence supports them and where it can let them down in their careers. I'm your host, Vanessa Murphy, confidence coach, HR expert and podcaster. Every fortnight, this podcast will introduce you to women who have interesting stories to tell around confidence. Through their stories, you will realise that even women who appear to have it all have had confidence wobbles. But by listening to them, you will take away what they do to remain top of the confidence game. So it's incredibly exciting today to welcome Zoe Daniel onto Women in Confidence. Zoe has an envy-inducing resume, which she's built up over years working as a journalist and foreign correspondent. Both roles have given Zoe the opportunity to travel extensively and live in places such as Africa, Southeast Asia, the USA and Australia, which is where she's from originally. Many Australians will know Zoe from her time as a television reporter and the bureau chief in Washington, D.C., working for ABC News. Zoe's now taking the steps into a next exciting chapter in her resume, in that she's looking to be elected as a member of parliament as an independent candidate. We've got absolutely stacks to talk about. I'm not sure we're going to fit it all in. I'm slightly nervous about this interview because Zoe is much more experienced at interviewing people. Um, Hopefully she's going to share some tips with me. So I'm delighted to have Zoe Daniel join me today. Hi, Zoe. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. No worries. You must be a woman in demand right now. Things have been a little bit busy the last couple of weeks. So as you know, I've announced that I'm going to run for federal parliament in Australia and it has been quite an explosive (laughs) announcement. We've had a lot of positive attention and enthusiasm about running as an independent politician. So yeah, it's an exciting time. Yeah, so we'll get onto that shortly. Um, But I just want to say your bio, your resume is it's probably world class. It's pretty impressive, I have to say. And I was just doing my notes before I came on and I thought, OK, what am I going to focus on? Because there's a lot in there. <laughs> but we'll start right at the beginning when you became a journalist. Um, I suppose, how did you get into journalism? Well, I grew up as a horse riding kid. I was a very self-reliant, outdoorsy child. My parents split up when I was about 13. And I was that kid who grew up in the 70s and I was dropped off at the paddock gate at eight o'clock in the morning and picked up at quarter to six in the evening. And I just had to figure things out for myself, you know, falling off ponies and fixing fences and problem solving. And, you know, I guess becoming a person who could navigate situations independently out in the Australian bush. I grew up in Tasmania and I actually wanted to be a vet through most of my teenage years. I really wanted to be a horse vet, but my science teacher said to me when I was in year nine, so I would have been about 15, look, you'll get through vet science, but you probably should play to your strengths. And the thing that you're really good at is writing. And I thought, yeah, there's probably something in that. So I kind of just switched almost overnight into being really determined to be a journalist. And this was an era in Australia when 60 Minutes, for example, was a really prominent program and there there was a particular journalist, Jana Vent, who was uh, very high profile and she then moved on to another program where she'd do quite high profile interviews with the Prime Minister and, and senior politicians and such and, you know, really take them to task and demand accountability. So I really, I saw her as 
um, a role model. And I was lucky enough that my dad, having been a footballer in Melbourne for many years, had some good contacts in television. So he organised for me to do work experience on the program that she then worked on, A Current Affair which was much less tabloid then than it is now. And that was kind of the start of me really getting an understanding of what it might be like to work in journalism. And at that point, I was 16. So growing up in Tasmania, there were limited options for university degrees. So I left Tassie when I turned 18 and went to South Australia and did a degree in journalism. And when you started out in your journalism career, did you have any idea or ambition that you were going to end up as a bureau chief, for example, in DC at a really politically charged period of time? No, not at all. And in fact, having gone into journalism because I enjoyed writing, I always expected to become a newspaper feature writing writer. Uh, probably as a secondary career would have liked to be a novelist. And I have written three books, one of which is a novel for younger kids. But I've never actually worked for a newspaper. I've done a lot of writing for the ABC where I worked for 27 years, but all of my career really was in initially radio journalism and after that television journalism. So I I didn't really sort of see things the way that they played out, but I guess that often happens, doesn't it, in careers where paths appear that, that you didn't expect or there's forks in the road and you make particular choices around that that you might not have expected to be presented. I do think that it was during my university years and friends have reminded me of this sense that I I was kind of actively stating that I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. But I think part of that was actually to do with wanting to test myself internationally, you know, that I, I had some good skills and ability as a journalist in Australia. Could that stand up on the world stage? Would I be able to mix it? with journalists in other countries. So I've been lucky enough to test those skills across several continents now. And you talk about sort of the twists and turns and the forks in the road of of your career, and you're absolutely spot on. How did you know that when you got to the other side of this twist or turn that it was going to be all right? How did you have the sort of sense or the confidence that things were going to work out? Well, I guess you never quite know, but... Often what I've found in my career is that I might have aspired to do something for a long time and felt like I wasn't quite making it. You know, when I decided I wanted to be a foreign correspondent, for example, I applied for several foreign postings and did not get the job. When I finally got my first foreign posting based in South Africa, covering all of sub-Saharan Africa, it felt like the most natural step in the world because I was perfectly ready for that at the time. So although it was something that I aspired to for a long time, when I actually got the job, it wasn't like a huge revelation. It was just like, oh, yes, well, this is a natural step and and this should work. And the same thing applies when I was appointed as Southeast Asia correspondent sometime later. We were already living in Southeast Asia in Cambodia at the time. I applied for the posting in Bangkok. And of course, I was already immersed in all of the issues in Southeast Asia. So again, it was just a very natural progression. So I think it's it's that sense of confidence of, I know what to do. I know how to do it. This is a natural fit for me. And you can then sort of step into that space, feeling like you can own it. You mentioned you applied for a number of roles and you got rejected. How, how do you deal with rejection? Well, just to continue building the blocks that were needed to get there. As far as being a foreign correspondent 
was concerned, when I was stepping into that space, it was an era of early media disruption in the sense that journalists now tend to do everything. So they'll do forms of broadcast and digital and perhaps audio and written journalism. When I first became a, a journalist, it was all very demarcated. So you're either a print journalist or a radio journalist or a television journalist. But I realised that to be a foreign correspondent, I was going to need to be able to do all those things. So I really set about ticking the boxes. Can I do radio journalism? Can I do radio current affairs? Can I do television journalism? Can I do television current affairs? Can I do live coverage? Can I do written features for the website? All those sorts of things. So each time I, I got a rejection, I guess I went back and looked at my experience and said, okay, what was, was missing there? And, you know, I have to be honest that particularly in broadcast journalism, you know, there is a degree of gravitas, I think, that's required. And perhaps early on, I just didn't have it. And one boss actually did say to me when I didn't get one of those jobs, you just don't have the gravitas. And obviously, the missing word was yet. Uh, And it was a little bit sort of an ouch moment to say, oh, well, I don't have enough gravitas. Thanks very much. Well, I better go and sort of develop it. But of course, I did develop it innately over time through the experiences that I had. You talk about gravitas. I um, It was mentioned to me once, and at the time I didn't have a clue what that meant, so I had to go <laughs> and look it up in a dictionary as as we used to once upon a time, um, and hopefully by now I've actually gained some. I've also forgotten my own formula, and I should have said to you right at the beginning to help us understand what you think confidence is and how does that show up for you. So my uh, mistake there, but, but what is confidence to you and what does it mean? I think it's being true to yourself and trusting yourself and trusting yourself to take risks, to to take chances, to perhaps do the unexpected. I think that in my case, I've been very lucky through my career years that for most of that time, my husband has been by my side and, and we're kind of, we're not innately risk takers, but we're prepared to sort of take the plunge together to do something different or perhaps unexpected. So we're always on the lookout for opportunities. And I think just having that centred sense of your understanding of your own capacity and and ability gives you that confidence to be able to say, yeah, I can take that opportunity. I can embrace that self-belief that I can do that. Not to say that You know, like a lot of women, I don't suffer from imposter syndrome sometimes, Um, but I've also learned to navigate that, to sort of think, well, why would anyone else be able to do it any better than me with the experience that I have, the background that I have? You know, I tick all the boxes for this role. And so therefore I can embrace the role and and step into it confidently knowing that I can deliver. But I I am quite self-analytical Uh, in terms of the work that I do. And I'll often look back at things that I've done and think "Mm, that could have been better in this way. So it's always a growth experience. Do you ever watch yourself back on TV? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, when you first start working in broadcast journalism, even hearing yourself on the radio is very irksome, Um, but you get used to it over time. I, you know, worked in broadcast journalism for 27 years, so I'm quite used to seeing myself on television promos and and things like that. But it doesn't mean to say that I don't sometimes look back at an interview that I've done or a story that I've done and think, hmm, I could have improved that or, or I could have done that 
better. But I think that's good to be able to self-analyse to the extent that every time you do something, you're continuing to move forward and, and tweak and improve and grow. You talked earlier about taking opportunities and not in a risk-taking sense, but just sort of seizing the opportunity that comes up. So you uh, worked in Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, and also then in uh, Washington, D.C. How did that job come about? So we were in Southeast Asia for five years and our children were quite young through that period. So when we moved to Southeast Asia, our oldest child was two and our youngest one was only a few months old. So we moved with the two of them to Cambodia and then to Thailand. And after five years there, incredibly intense work. And it so happened that I was covering a lot of natural disasters and plane crashes and civil unrest and all, all sorts of things during that time. So it was a very draining job. So we came back to Australia for two years, also to give the kids a good taste of living here and being Australian. You know, it's really important to us that the kids had a, a sense of being centred, a, a sense of where where are they from. This can be an issue for expat kids. So we really determined to give them some time going to school in Australia and, and being Aussies. And while we were back for that two years, it was a bit of a, a weird time. And anyone who's been an expat will know that coming back is often harder than going. You sort of return home and you feel a bit of the loose end and nothing feels quite as exciting as it was when you were overseas because you're not exposed to different cultures and all sorts of things. And I think also the fact that the kids were the age they were at the time, we knew that there was an, an opportunity for us to go again before they hit high school. So then it was sort of posed to me, well, maybe bureau chief in DC would be a good role for you. And the role wasn't necessarily open at the time, but it was sort of held up as as an option. So when that role did open, I I applied for it and I had to go through a process just like everyone else, but then then I won that job. Can you just explain to people who are listening what Bureau Chief does? Yeah, so the Bureau for the ABC Australia in Washington is the largest ABC Bureau in the world by international standards, is still very small compared to something like the BBC or or CNN. Um, But in effect, the bureau chief is a reporter and journalist and foreign correspondent, but also manages the coverage out of the bureau. So it had several correspondents, several producers, a couple of camera operators. And from that bureau in DC, we're covering all of the Americas. So the United States, Canada, uh, and also Central and South America. So it's a very, very busy job, and particularly at that time because, of course, it was the election of Donald Trump that I covered in 2016 and then his administration. So my job was to not only report but to, I guess, uh, set the tone and the direction of our coverage and, and to manage the Bureau. And other stories that you cover, because I know you talked about sort of Donald Trump and the political landscape, but I know that you covered an awful lot more than just that. What other stories sort of broke at that time, which people might be aware of? Mm. Well, yeah, because people often think because of that era where the era of covering Trump was so relentless and Trump sort of dominated world news for several years, as everyone would know, it's very hard to get away from. But as a bureau, we weren't just a political bureau, we were covering everything else that was happening in the US and surrounds at the time. So 
everything from mass shootings, so the Vegas massacre, the Orlando massacre, uh, several hurricanes, the movement of um, migrant economic migrants and, and refugees through uh, South and Central America, um, earthquakes in Mexico, so all sorts of things, so economic issues, really everything that's happening that, you know, we felt warranted coverage, we were covering, as well as the, the Trump administration. So that your time, so Africa, Southeast Asia, the Americas, and you already mentioned, you know, natural disasters, shootings, those are quite exhausting just thinking about them. How did you protect yourself emotionally from some of that just awful reality that was going on? Mm. It's really difficult to protect yourself emotionally from. And in many ways, I feel that being a foreign correspondent has similarities to being perhaps an emergency doctor or a paramedic, that you're like a coiled spring all the time, sort of waiting for the call, waiting for something to happen that you have to respond to. And, you know, you'd be working on feature stories and things in the background, you know, think of things that we had generated that we weren't reacting to as well, but then something would happen and you get that call 3 a.m. in the morning or there's been a mass shooting at a, a nightclub in Orlando, quick, get up, you know, find out what's happened, file stories, get on a plane, go to the location, and then to be faced with often immense grief um, from people who are affected or just huge impact from those who'd been affected by perhaps a superstorm in the Philippines that I, I covered or a, a, a cyclone in Vanuatu, you know, all sorts of things that I've, I've been at. Um, protecting yourself, I think my sort of coping mechanisms are to really talk to those that I'm working with a lot. So interact with the cameraman and work very closely with the cameraman, for example. I've had very close relationships with a lot of the cameramen that I've worked with, and that's really helped, especially when that person's been in the situation with you. Also, to, to try to see value in what you're doing, particularly in the case of a natural disaster in developing countries, you know, it's important to tell that story because then that often generates support from other countries for the people in the affected place. And then I think the final thing is that my family is very close. So to be able to debrief with my family and to have family time with my husband and children on my return. And then my other mental health strategy that I've developed mostly in the last decade is running. Um, if I'm under pressure, I tend to feel a lot better if I get out and, and go for a run. And so that's something that I've really lent on, particularly during my years in, in the United States. And even now, back here in Australia, I tend to try to run most days. And you're also a swimmer. So bay <laughs> swimming or ocean swimming. Yeah, well, this is, that's something that I've taken up quite recently during our various lockdowns in Melbourne and it is absolutely freezing in the dead of winter I can tell you the uh, temperature in the bay in Melbourne gets down to about seven or eight degrees but there, there's something quite cathartic about having a swim in very cold water so if you haven't tried it I would highly recommend it. <laughs> and just going back to um, when you were a journalist and um, this unpredictable nature you know the phone call at three o'clock in the morning are you somebody who thrives on that um, ambiguity, that little bit of uncertainty? Well, I think I got used to it. And, you know, people talk about sort of being an adrenaline junkie and I actually I don't think I'm that 
in many ways I'm quite risk averse actually. So it's kind of kind of strange to have um, therefore ended up doing what I have done because a lot of the situations have been quite high risk. But I'm also a good risk manager. So I'm sort of quite good at figuring out, for example, how to get into a difficult environment. So how can we get into and out of Venezuela without getting arrested, for example, or Zimbabwe or whatever other place that we're not meant to be as journalists? So sort of trying to focus on the problem and the task um, rather than, I guess, the fear and and the risk and the sort of overwhelming nature of it. But, you know, as far as sort of being that person who likes a bit of uncertainty goes I think it's it's a case of enjoying being kind of on the front side of history a lot of the time especially being a foreign correspondent you know often you're in unfolding situations whether it's in the Oval Office or covering some major unfolding news event that no one else gets to see up close and it is a very privileged position to be able to sort of bear direct witness to things. And I think that, you know, one of the skills that I've I have and that I've developed over my career is to be able to bring people to a situation, to, to try to give them a window into wherever I am, uh, the people that I'm meeting, the life that they have, the experience that they're having. And that there is something, uh, as, as I say, very gratifying about being able to be in a position to to do that. So if there's anything that's sort of addictive about it, it, it's to be able to be in other people's shoes in many ways, to, to be in situations, go places, see things that perhaps most people don't get to see or experience. I, um, as you were talking, I was thinking getting arrested in uh, Venezuela or Zimbabwe, are not, they're not normal sort of thought patterns really, but um, you seem to have dealt with them particularly well. Let's move on to you uh, in your current journey or adventure, however you want to describe it, and standing for an independent. How how did that happen? Um, did you was that a conscious decision or were you approached? I'm curious to know. Yeah, so I, I've never considered that I would become a politician. Uh, I'm not party political in in any way, and I think particularly having been a, a journalist, particularly a journalist for a public organisation having to have a, a quite an objective position that I, I never would have been able to choose which party that I might run for because I'm the person who goes into the polling booth and votes depending on who the leadership team is at the time and what their particular policies are and what I think they can deliver. And it doesn't really matter to me which of the major parties it is. If I have belief in that particular team, that's where my vote goes as a, as a swinging voter. But in this case... There's a developing movement in Australia to get independence into politics, to, to try to bring back some accountability in, in areas where people think that accountability is missing. So improving climate policy through an economic lens, particularly bringing integrity and honesty uh, back to the behaviour and language that politicians use, and also uh, equality and genuine safety for women in the workplace. They're some of the top things. So community group, which sprung up to look for someone to do that job, came to me and said, would you be interested in standing as our candidate? And initially I, I was sort of like, mm, I don't know about that um, because I know politics because I've been around it as an observer for a long time and I know how 
you know, overwhelming, I guess, that can be, how, how hectic but also how toxic that environment can be, particularly currently the world over in many ways. But when I thought about it more, I, I thought that those issues that I've mentioned really resonate with me. And I, I do feel that party politics, not only in Australia but around the world right now, is quite stuck. And I, I feel like we've kind of forgotten that politicians are elected to represent the views of the people and to deliver better policy and to take us forward and, and to make life better and to protect our, our future prosperity. So for all of those reasons and with the support of my family, especially my children and my son who's almost 15, who has very strong views, especially about climate, he said, Mum, you know, you, you have to do this. Um, you can do something for us. And so... Here we are. <laughs> and do you have um, a little voice, a critical voice that's saying, you know, Zoe, really? Is this is this right? Do you have a voice that tells you to stop or to do something? Well, in this case, this all feels very unfamiliar. Um, I'm very much out of my comfort zone because I'm having to take a position on things that I would never have otherwise expressed an opinion on. However, they are things that I feel really strongly about and therefore I can be very sincere in that endeavour. And since we announced this um, this endeavour a couple of weeks ago, the response has been so overwhelmingly positive that that then validates the decision to be approached by people in the street or have people messaging or emailing or stopping at the front gate to say, this is just fantastic. Thank you for doing this. Someone really needed to do it. I'm so pleased. You know, really appreciate it. Um, you know, that's really meaningful. But it also says that it's not just me that thinks these things, that there is a, a groundswell of opinion behind me. So you mentioned that the political environment can be toxic and that was your word and for me as a, an outsider I'd say I imagine it's quite a brutal place to be because you're quite exposed both professionally and personally and particularly there's a shortage of women like good quality women in politics why is that why is this big gap with women going into politics well it's a good question I mean in Australia the Labour Party so the opposition has introduced quotas so their balance, their gender balance is now relatively even, having had quotas in place for some time. On the other side of politics with the LNP or the coalition, not so much. Um, so, you know, there's a, a bigger conversation to be had about the use of quotas to even up the gender balance. And there's other things that could be said about cultural balance too in the Australian Parliament, to be honest. Um, but I also do think that the toxic nature of the environment, the evidence of the sexism and indeed sexual harassment and worse that's come out of the parliament in the last couple of years particularly is a big disincentive for a lot of women. You know, a lot of women like me would say, oh, I'm not going to go and be involved in that. Why would I, I put myself through it? Um, but I tend to think perhaps the reverse if we're going to change it, we need to change it from the inside. The only way of changing it is, is to even up that gender balance. So, therefore, more women have to, have to step forward and have a voice at that table. And I think you, you're starting to see that several women are thinking the same way because as this push for independence unfolds, most of those who are stepping forward are women like me 
professional women of a particular age who see that they have capacity to ha- to have a voice and that they have the confidence to step into that and they're no longer content with being critical observers sitting on the outside going oh this is just toxic um, actually wanting to get in there and, and try to make a difference and do you see yourself as a role model um well I'd like to think I'm a role model for my daughter at least and I guess that's a start it's interesting um, earlier this year she was nominated at school to give a speech on Mother's Day and it's not something that she would normally do, I, I don't think. And I think after she agreed to do it, she probably wondered why she had because then she had to think really hard about what on earth she was going to say. Um, but she had to give a speech about me and she stood up and said, if I was to use one word to describe my mum, it would be tenacity. And I was I was really touched by that. Um, but it also spoke to me that she knows me quite well and she went on to say that I, I've also taught her to always be herself and to not be swayed from who she is um, and to be confident in, in who she is. And so from that perspective, you know, I think she reads me as a role model and that, that perhaps others do too, but what's most important to me is that my daughter does. So just as we sort of wrap this up, what one piece of advice would you offer to the women who are listening who are thinking, I don't have the same confidence as Zoe, I haven't had the same opportunities. What's your one piece of advice that they can feel they can take away um, and have some confidence? Look, I think the first thing is not overthinking things. I often talk to women who are much younger than me who are sort of having that conversation with themselves about how can I have work and career? Does it have to be one or the other? And trying to map their life before it actually unfolds. And I often tend to say, well, you can have both, maybe not always at the same time. So these things tend to ebb and flow as you find the balance in at particular times of your life sometimes you're doing more family oriented things or personal things other times you're doing more career oriented things but to just be open to opportunities and don't overthink and and don't overplan and you're right I've had some amazing opportunities and in, in that sense I've been very blessed but I've also been open to accepting those opportunities and even in the context of um, this latest endeavour of running for parliament, I thought about it a lot because of the impact that it would have on my family and that, that I would have to travel a lot and be, be away. And when I eventually came to the decision that I would do it, I was driving my son to football training and I, I said, I've, I've decided I'm going to um, put myself forward and he was cheering in the car. And I said, well, I haven't been formally nominated for the role yet. I still have to go through a, through a process. And he said, yeah, but the first step, mum, is saying yes. And I thought that that was very astute. You know, you, you can only accept uh, opportunities or see opportunities and paths and avenues unfold in front of you once you're willing to see them and, and step down that path. And if you leave yourself open to those chances, then those things tend to evolve into things that and experiences 
that are really interesting and worthwhile. I love um, that comment about, you know, just taking the action and the first step because, and I think we should maybe listen to our children a lot more because they are less, well, they have sort of fewer barriers to this. They haven't really encountered some of the risks and some of the decision-making and don't carry a lot of the baggage that goes with being, you know, in my case, 48 years old and uh, et cetera. And I think that's such good advice, actually. Mm. We should all listen to your son. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what's what's um, what's the next step then in terms of the election and and getting yourself into Parliament? Yeah, well, I mean, the middle of this completely new world of building a campaign team and building a campaign strategy and and structure and trying to figure out how you actually win an election and how we mobilise anecdotally what is this huge support that we've had since we launched. So it is it's a whole new adventure. It feels extremely unfamiliar, but it's kind of one step at a time. And, you know, one exciting thing about it is that, you know, I've just stepped into a completely new space. So I'm learning all sorts of things um, about myself, about the new people that I'm working with, about this process that we're going through. And I think in my case, uh, running as an independent, I, I can jump into it very wholeheartedly and sincerely because I don't really have anything to lose. You know, I believe in what I'm saying and I I believe that what we're trying to do is is good for the electorate and and good for the country. So I can just completely immerse myself in that. And so really the only issues to traverse are issues of logistics, of the how, but the why is pretty clear. So how can people find out more about you and the campaign? Yeah, so we have a website up. It's zoedaniel.com.au and there's lots of materials on there about firstly getting involved in the campaign and, and such, but there's lots and lots of media links on there and policy links and information which will build over time. The underpinning of the community independent concept is community consultation and engagement. So that's something that I've already been doing a lot of over the last week or so, having lots of meetings, talking to people, doing some town hall events and such, and that's what we'll be doing over the next four to six months, not quite knowing when the election will be at this, this point, but really trying to build policy positions that are responsive to what people in the community want need and and feel are missing have you been surprised by anything during this process of stepping into the role has anybody surprised you or something's come up and you think oh well really wasn't expecting that well I think the main thing that surprised me has been the um the overwhelming reaction we put a campaign video out on the first day when the news broke uh, just a little video of me talking about the main platforms and the campaign videos had several hundred thousand views. We've had two iterations of it now, but it's probably up to almost half a million views across social media platforms. And so, you know, again, quite surprising to see people so engaged with one independent campaign in Melbourne. But I think it's a reflection of some underlying issues in our politics that that need fixing and the other thing is just that thing of being out in the street in a t-shirt 
putting myself out there to talk to people about this and just getting such a warm response from people, especially when that feels like I'm very much out of my comfort zone doing that, putting myself in people's face as someone who's a politician to say, I need your vote, um, but the response has been really warm and, and that's a great start. I love that you say you just put together a little video of yourself, um, but I suppose <laughs> a life just constantly in front of the camera, you feel absolutely at ease. But for, for many people, the thought of putting themselves on a video out there to the world is, well, I mean, probably is a really good conversation to have around confidence. <laughs> well, that that is my comfort zone, of course. And, you know, the communication piece of this, of course, is... Uh, something that comes perhaps more easily to me than it than it does to others. But I'm very conscious of rigorous analysis of of what I'm saying and the policy positions that we're taking need, needing to be underpinned by really good facts. Um, and you know, I think there's a big trust gap not only in Australia but around the world between leaders and the community currently and that's something that I've seen obviously in the United States with in in many ways the disintegration of one of the world's greatest democracies in part because of fragmenting trust between leaders and real people and that's something that I'm very aware of in terms of the way that I interact with the community. Mm. So I'm just looking at my notes there's so much we actually haven't covered so we haven't covered you're um, being an author in your three books. We haven't covered public speaking and you do an awful lot of that. And we also haven't covered your podcast. So <laughs> I think I'm going to have to have you back. Uh, and when you're obviously successful at the election, if you're allowed to come back, it would be really nice to have you as a guest back on the show. And we can reflect on what we talked about now, but also cover some of the things that we didn't have chance to do now. So but I do yeah. wish you the best of luck in the election. Um, and I really, really hope it goes your way. Thanks so much, Vanessa. Thank you so much for listening to Women in Confidence, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please like it, share it, comment on it, and if you want to, sponsor it. If you'd like to take part in my podcast or know somebody who would make a perfect guest, then please email me on contact at vanessa-murphy.com. That's contact at vanessa-murphy.com. Until next time. Thank you.